0: Welcome to Episode 72 of PubCrawl, a publishing podcast about reading, writing, books, and occasionally booze. I'm your host, S.J. Jones. I'm a New York Times bestselling author and erstwhile editor. And I'm your co-host, Kelly Van Sant. I am a literary agent and a publishing contracts expert. We are both contributors with the Publishing Crawl blog, and together we have over 15 years of industry experience. And today we are going to be talking about um, the revenge and redemption arcs uh, in our archetype series. Um, We were kind of thinking about this sort of before we were recording, because initially we were just going to cover the redemption, or not the redemption, the revenge arc, but then we're kind of like, but that seems a little bit small and a little bit thin. But in some ways this is related a little bit to the heist narrative, not in terms of plot, but in that both, in that a revenge narrative is not noble. It's not like Mm. the chosen one narrative or the oppressed versus the oppressor narrative where it's usually somebody doing it, somebody is, you know, they're going through the story and it's usually for a greater good of some sort. And redemption narratives often start with a character who does not have a noble cause, but Mm -hmm. ends up acquiring one or changing their worldview by the end. So we thought they were a little bit related, and we thought we'd talk about them together. Mm -hmm. Um, So, I guess just to start, do you actually read or like revenge narratives or redemption narratives?
1: Um, I love a good redemption arc. I think that it's one of the most interesting things you can do in fiction. And I think it's really difficult to do well. So I don't think, I don't know if it's that there are not as many of them out there. Um, or if it's just that, uh, that I only seek out really good ones. And so I'm working with a limited pool. Um, but I really love redemption stories. Because they're all about character development, right? It's, mm-hmm. it's purely about someone completely changing their worldview and so that's fascinating to me revenge stories i also think are interesting but i'm less like if i had to pick one that is my favorite i would pick redemption over revenge only because i you know i think because of that character development i think because you know characters are always my access point into story it's always what i care about most and um you know, so I think I, if I had to pick one, I'd pick redemption. But I like revenge stories too, if they're done well.
0: I think I, I don't really gravitate toward either. I do like a good redemption narrative in a book, but for me, it can't be the main story. I have mm. to have an. Uh, I have to have a redemption narrative that is in conjunction with uh, larger stories. Uh, an example that I can think of off the top of my head is Zuko from Avatar The Last Airbender. Yes! Who, it's like the best it is, redemption arc ever written. It is written. absolutely the best redemption arc ever written for a character. And um, But if it was just Zuko's story, I don't know if I would have liked it as much. Because mm. here's the thing, and I think you know this goes back to a lot of arguments or discussions people have about whether or not a protagonist has to be, quote, likable. mm And I don't believe a protagonist has to be likable, but I think they have to be compelling and or empathetic, and I think it's easier to make an empathetic character. I think it's easier, which is why I think redemption and revenge narratives are hard to pull off, because if you don't buy into this character's worldview from the start, you're not going to be on board for the rest of the story to you're not going to stick it out to see whether or not they actually achieve revenge or actually achieve redemption so you know that's kind of why I don't really gravitate toward them simply because it's a hard sell at first like here's a character mm-hmm. you don't like or maybe you do like you know it depends right. but it's just like it's it's a little bit hard in that way um, so I think those are kind of the pitfalls. I do like it. I think I'm a little bit the opposite of you in that I think I might prefer a revenge narrative. Uh, there's something really satisfying about a character who has had infinite wrong done to them just one by one take out their <laughs> list. Um, it's sort of like obviously the one I can think of off the top of my head is, uh, Kill Bill, which is a movie, mm-hmm. not a book, because I'm don't know if I can think of revenge narratives off the top of my head for books. I think partially because of the problem that I mentioned before that it's sort of hard to empathize with a character Mm -hmm. like that. Um, But like Kill Bill or even a side story is um, Arya from Mm -hmm. A Song of Ice and Fire. And her her storyline's really dark. Um, But you know, she has a list. She has a list of people that she is going to kill. Um, and it's dark, but I kind of like it. And I there's yeah. something really satisfying or almost cathartic in a way of, of following a character that just doesn't have the same morals as I do or just mm-hmm. doesn't care. Because I think when it comes down to it, I don't think I could execute a revenge in real life. So there's like the fantasy element of, well, here's somebody who is executing that revenge. Mm-hmm. Um, Oh, revenge narrative. I literally just thought about this before we started recording, was Wuthering Heights, which is really a revenge narrative. It's Heathcliff's revenge narrative against the Lintons and the Earnshaws. Basically, he's a, a foundling found off the streets. He eventually takes over the properties of the household that adopted him and also the properties of the household that married the woman he loves. Um, that's kind of ultimately the, the narrative of Wuthering Heights, and I actually hate this book a lot.
1: <laughs> yeah, I could never get into it. I feel like you were either Wuthering Heights or Jane Eyre, and I was Jane Eyre. I
0: was also Jane Eyre. Um,
1: and this is not to say that I think Wuthering
0: Heights is a, quote, bad book. I think craft-wise, it's actually, much, it's actually more sophisticated than Jane Eyre. Um, but just emotionally, I cannot stand any of these characters, like, at all. It's a little bit like Gone Girl, right? Like, I, like Nick and Amy, I hated these characters, and I never wanted to spend time with them ever again. And it's a little bit the same with me and Kathy and Heathcliff. I just don't care. Mm-hmm. I don't like them. So this is, like I said, this is the problem with a lot of revenge and redemption narratives that. You have to really get on board with the character from the start. Um, can you think of a story that's actually a redemption narrative on its own, and not, like, involves a redemption narrative for
1: a character? I... I cannot, off the top of my head. I think you're right that they're usually folded into a larger narrative. There is a character whose arc is the redemption arc within a larger story. Um... I'm sure that there exists one where you're trying to redeem a specific character, um, but I don't know if that can be done successfully or has been done successfully or how so. I mean, I think like you said, it, it you come up against the problem of if you're redeeming someone, then they're starting out, you know, quote-unquote bad, either morally or emotionally or something about them, you know, needs to be redeemed. And it's hard to stick with someone through that journey when you're at that place, so it's easier to have another entry point into the story and then see this unfold alongside, so.
0: Yeah, I mean, not to get too into um, current I was happening. I didn't
1: I was going to name it but then I was like I don't know. <laughs>
0: um full disclosure, I have not read The Black Witch. Um, Neither have I. But it is a it is a redemption narrative for a racist character or or racist in a fantasy world. So it's not exactly like a one-to-one racist character. Um and I don't Like Part of it, was that was part of the reason I didn't pick it up, and also I just have no time for other types of reading right now, so that's another reason I have not read The Black Witch. But I do think a redemption narrative is going to be hard because you're going to either have to be sympathetic with this terrible character to start, to really get on board with their redemption. Um, But depending on what needs to be redeemed... It you're going to immediately alienate or even harm a potential audience. Like The problem with any sort of racist redemption arc is that it's never written for people of color. It's always written mm. for a white reader and a white audience. And the character that undergoes the racist redemption is basically realizing oh, I've been wrong all along. And that's not a bad story to tell. But I think a lot of people who are not white and who will not who will never experience a racist redemption like this will be turned off and probably for
1: really good reason, yeah. so and also to have this story end there, like to end with the realization like, oh look, I've been wrong about these people all along like that's not actually a great ending to that arc because your own personal realization doesn't undo or repair any of the harm that you've caused for the whole book so yeah I mean if we were to go
0: if we were to go we're back to Avatar The Last Airbender and we talk about Zuko's redemption narrative arc he is ostensibly the villain from the beginning you know he mm-hmm. is part of a he's the son of a genocidal maniac um, and he is trying to get into his father's good graces mm-hmm. Um But pretty much, very slowly, and almost from the beginning, you kind of get the sense that, one, he doesn't truly believe in his father's mission, but also he comes to that realization that this is wrong pretty early. Mm -hmm. I'd say almost, really almost by the end of season one, he's kind of realized that this is not the right path to be on, and then spends the next two seasons... Coming Well, he spends season two grappling with that sort of existential crisis of, you know, who am I? Um, And then season three, I would say that he spends a lot of it atoning and trying to, you know, know, make good with the person he's harmed over the course of the first two seasons. So Mm -hmm. I think that's a really good sort of redemption arc to portray, because if you just sort of stop at, oh, these thoughts and beliefs that I've held all my life are wrong... That's easy. That's yeah. That's not a conflict. That's easy, and you know. And Mm -hmm. I think unless you go beyond that in a in a narrative, and you go into maybe even address
1: reparations, then it's Mm -hmm. it's a it's
0: kind of a lazy ending.
1: Yeah. And I think it's what makes Zuko's arc in particular so satisfying that he goes through all that. Because essentially, for all of season two, JJ and I, by the way, have an Avatar pod- podcast. Yes. If you haven't listened to it, you can go find Earth Kingdom Radio and uh, and listen to us talk about Zuko at length and hear me cry a little bit. But um, A little bit. <laughs> or a lot. <laughs> <laughs> But Zuko spends, essentially, starting from the end of season one, you know, moving into season two, he's not after the Avatar anymore. Like, it's like you said, he is no longer, you know, trying to capture Aang or trying to, you know, appease his father. He's, you know, embraced, quote-unquote, his exile, or at least is, you know, not fighting it, and is trying to make a new life for himself and really figure out who he is. And it takes an entire season And he backslides. And like the reason his arc is so satisfying at the end is because it truly feels earned. His Mm -hmm. redemption was not easy. It was not a matter of, um, you know, correcting, you know, one small worldview or or he had to earn it. He had to do the work. uh, And he does. And it's so satisfying because of that.
0: And also, ultimately, and it's not even that Aang and friends forgave him immediately either he literally had to prove to them that he
1: mm-hmm.
0: ha- was trying to make good the episode where i think where he joins the group i think he says you know if you won't take me as an ally then what you know take me as your prisoner and even right. then they say no they don't you know they they're just like no we're not going to you know you've hurt us too badly so he has to prove to them by quite literally saving their lives and putting his own life on the mm-hmm. line to be like, okay, maybe we should give this guy a chance. And even then, they don't all give him a chance right away. It's kind of a one by one situation. Yeah. Which is also really realistic and it's not like it's not like they say, "Oh, you know, okay, well, you saw the error of your ways. Welcome into our group," you know. Right. And he's not the hero either. The story is still Aang's story. Mm -hmm. So his redemption arc doesn't even... It doesn't become about Zuko, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Because I feel like a lot of these stories do end up about the person being redeemed in a way. And it kind of detracts or they sort of take over someone's story. Um, So that's kind of the other issue with a lot of particularly racist redemption arcs. But any sort of bigoted character overcoming a bigotry of sorts... Mm-hmm. is just going to be tough in that way because yeah. it's hard to buy into unless mm-hmm. you have other viewpoints that show immediately that this character is wrong, in the wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, but,
1: yeah. Yeah, so I, I,
0: yeah, that's kind of where I was thinking. I was like, I can't really think of too
1: many redemption arcs. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, another one that I love is also not the main plot, of the story, but I have not read the books, the 100, but I've read, I've watched the TV show and I love it. And there's a character in that show, John Murphy. And if you had told me at season one, that by the end of whatever season they're on right now, he would be one of my favorite characters. I could not, it it did not have it possible in me to believe you because he was so despicable. And like, I mean despicable. This character is horrible in the beginning and they redeem him and it's hard and horrible and awful and takes a long time. And he too backslides and, you know, it, it's, but, but at the end of this most current season, I think they just wrapped up season five a couple months ago. I'm like, you're one of my favorites and I love you. <laughs> and I think that, um, you know, I, I love a good redemption arc i think helena on orphan black i think is another character that they redeemed really beautifully so i think it can be done um but i think like you said it is difficult to do and i think that it's uh, the ones that i'm thinking of that are in my mind successful are not the main storyline they are you know subplots or you know parallel arcs um that feed into a larger narrative.
0: It's it's a little bit the same with revenge narratives because I can't really think of a book where the revenge narrative is kind of the main plot. I'm sure. I'm sure as soon as this podcast is over, I'm going to think of like five, and right. it's going to bother me. Because um, a lot of times, I feel like a lot of revenge narratives start out with a character seeking revenge, only to mm-hmm basically come to the realization that revenge is not really mm-hmm. the path that they want to be taking.
1: Yeah. I mean, the revenge stories that I can think of that center on revenge are Sweeney Todd, mm-hmm. the musical by Stephen Sondheim, which is about a man whose, um, wife is murdered and whose daughter is, well, not quite murdered. I guess she's driven insane. um, his wife is driven insane and his daughter is essentially confiscated and he is framed for crimes and shipped off and he wants revenge on the, on the man who ruined his life and is responsible for, for those things. And, uh, he becomes a demonic barber and murders people and has his accomplice turn them into pies. (laughs) I really love gruesome but wonderful. Um, you know, and that's a, a play where, um, I, I, I cannot actually even believe this, but I am sort of blanking on the end. But I think he does get revenge on Judge Turpin, right? He does get end. revenge
0: on Judge Turpin. But the That's ending not, but is the, really ambiguous as to whether right. or not it's a good
1: thing. Thing, yeah.
0: Because, like, the effect of his revenge is to essentially, basically, like, it leaves his daughter kind of. Stranded, like we're not sure what her her eventual fate is. The mm-hmm. person who's been assisting him has been also driven mad by sort of the things that he's witnessed. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and I, it, yeah, it's it's not yeah, necessarily it's just what more it, destruction. In yeah, yeah, yeah. It definitely comes to the conclusion that, like, you know, this is not a good idea. It basically yeah. ruins everyone else's lives, not just yours. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, like, the same thing could sort of be said of Wuthering Heights in that he's achieved his revenge almost, mm-hmm. like, halfway through the book. The revenge has more or less been achieved, And but he's... Heathcliff is supremely unhappy about it. Mm-hmm. He's, you know, bitter and haunted by the ghost of Kathy, and like...
1: Mm-hmm. So
0: it it doesn't really end well for
1: him. I thought of one revenge story that ends well hmm. in Nego Montoya. who killed my father, prepared to die. <laughs> ends well in that he gets his revenge and I'm happy about it. <laughs> and yes. he doesn't seem too emotionally scarred. Yes,
0: yes. Yeah, that's kind of the only one I can think of as well right now. <laughs> um, that ends happily. Yeah, most of them don't. They either end with a person achieving revenge but losing something substantial in the process. Often it's their own life, but it could be anything, something else that yeah. Their humanity
1: a lot of times I think is at risk,
0: or they don't go through with their revenge because their last bit of humanity, in fact, does save them. So it's kind Mm. of you know it's very rare to find one that ends quote happily. (laughs) Um, Kind of related to this. What about villain stories? Mm. Like, it's not a chosen one narrative necessarily, and it's not Mm. really an oppressed versus an oppressor. It's not really revenge. Sometimes a villain narrative will fall under redemption, but Mm. not always. So, Do you mean like
1: origin stories? Kind of, like, yeah,
0: villain origin stories.
1: Yeah. I'm trying to think of the few that I am well-versed in. um, You know, I know that there's a lot out there, but I I can't really speak to them necessarily. Um, I think, as a, you know, broadly speaking, I think that villain origin stories are interesting, because I think it's always interesting to go back and see what made this person this way. Um, You know, because, again, that's character development. But... I also think that it's hard to do well because either you have someone who's so empathetic that when they eventually succumb to villainy, you're disappointed (laughs) because it's not what you want for them, or else you don't really care, and so it's just kind of meh the whole way through. But I'm having trouble thinking of specific examples. Well, I mean, aside from Star Wars, which, <laughs> God, which was horribly done. Um,
0: there are two villain stories right now in YA that I can think of, which is one is the Young Elites trilogy by Marie Lou mm-hmm. and Forest of a Thousand Lanterns by Julie Dow.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, Both of which I haven't read yet, so.
0: Yeah, sorry, y'all. Um, Marie's, I'm going to spoil it a teensy, teensy bit, but like The Young Elites is really Marie has been very clear from the start that this is basically kind of like a Darth Vader type story. It's about a young woman who you know, has been scarred by everything that has happened to her literally and metaphorically and because of that turns basically into a monster and into a villain Um, but It doesn't end with her being successful in her villainy, and in fact I would also say that the ending of The Young Elites is hopeful. It's not quite Mm. a redemption narrative, because I don't necessarily think that the character of Adelina is redeemed, but I think it does end on a kind of bittersweet but hopeful note. Um, Not for Adelina necessarily, but like other characters in the Mm. cast. Um, so I really liked that ending and Force of a Thousand Lanterns is pretty great because even as you can see Shi Fang fall into villainy or becoming evil there's a part of you that's also like no don't but also the other part's like yes do it do it, it. <laughs> <laughs> um, which is fantastic and very hard to do and Julie does it extremely well um, so it's you know it's like that yes do it do it <laughs> Um, so, I mean, there are obviously villain backstory narratives, but not a ton. And often, you do get them as, like, a prequel after a series has been out. For example, um, Fairest, which is a novella in the Lunar Chronicles, which mm. kind of tells you how Queen Levana yes. got how she is. Um, and But you don't get that until, like, three or four books into the series. Uh-huh. So we were already well acquainted with her as a villain, and we get the the villain novella, and we just get a more complex view into what makes her who she is. Um, and the same thing with Star Wars. We had Luke's story first, and then years later we went to and, and looked at the rise and fall of Anakin Skywalker. Mm-hmm. Um. So, yeah, I mean... The ones that I mentioned book-wise, like Marie's book, Joey's book, I think do the villain narrative well, but again, like Star Wars, it's really... It's so easy to go wrong. Um, And I think it's because... I think for Star Wars, that problem was it didn't know, one, where to start the story, because they started when Anakin was, like, an infant. Um, So that's way too early. Um, but also they kind of vacillate back and forth. They're, they're not exactly sure whether or not to make him sympathetic or to make him unlikable. And they put—they do not pull off that balance well. Um, and so by the time Anakin does turn, quote, to the dark side, it's almost like a switch has been flipped and you're like, okay, like, also, and that's it? <laughs> like, that's the only reason you decided to turn to the dark side? the characterization wasn't strong enough for us to either feel one way or another, either relieved or upset or anything. Like, it honestly wasn't well done enough for us to really particularly care. Yeah. Um, I'm just trying to think if there's anything else about revenge, redemption, and villain narratives, because I do honestly feel... It's hard to do these on their own, Mm -hmm. like as a standalone novel. Not that, not that this cannot be done, but that it is hard to do. Mm -hmm. Um, and you will often see these sorts of narratives as a, like in addition to others in a book. Most often fantasy, I feel like that's the easiest place to sort of have like multiple storylines happening at once and Mm -hmm. multiple narratives happening at once. Um, And also easier in a TV show. Because you have... Often in a TV show, you have a bigger cast to work with. And you don't necessarily have to spend time in each and every one's head. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, Here's one. It's not... Again, it's not the main story. And I have not finished the series. But Shatter Me by Mm. Tahara Mafi features a character who is who's actually the romantic interest for the series, and he starts out as the villain of the first book. Um, and, uh, like I said, I have not read these books, so I can't necessarily say whether or not, you know, they're well-executed or not. I know plenty of people love them, so I assume that they are. <laughs> um, so that's kind of another one. But again, it's sort of yeah. not the main story of that trilogy, because that story yeah. belongs to Juliet.
1: Mm-hmm. I have. I was thinking of a story that is not on its face a revenge story, but then when you get to the very end, you're kind of like, wait, was this a revenge story all along? Um, and that's Down With Love, which is a romantic comedy on its face. <laughs> Which is really great, by the way, if you haven't seen it. It's starring um, Ewan McGregor and Renee Zellweger. And it's like an homage to all the Doris Day um, like romantic comedies of the 60s. And it's really fabulous. But essentially, the whole thing plays out like a romantic comedy. And then when you get to the last like five minutes, Renee Zellweger does this uncut, incredibly long monologue, which retcons the entire events of the movie. And essentially, she says to catch her, Block, uh, who is a ladies' man, man's man, man about town, that um, she had once been like his secretary or something, and um, he had blown her off or, you know, been otherwise somehow rude to her or whatever when she had a crush on him. And so she quit the job, she disappeared, she gave herself a complete makeover, she wrote a best-selling book instructing women how to have a sexual revolution, and, like, undid this entire man's, like, life, appeared in his life, got him to fall in love with her, but wouldn't have sex with him, and, like, elaborated this whole scheme to basically ruin his life and make him fall in love with her because he had been mean to her this one time when she was his secretary <laughs> But you don't know that at the outset of the movie; you only find that out at the end. I
0: completely forgot that about *Down with Love*, and I can't believe you've seen this movie because I felt like I was the only one. I think I, I actually saw this, this in the movie. theater. I'm pretty I sure I saw this it in the movie. theater. <laughs>
1: like it's so wonderful. I,
0: I, like it's I think it's funny, and I think it's cute. I wouldn't necessarily say it's a great romantic comedy
1: no no no, no no. I think I grew up on all the those like Doris Day movies, so I think it's for definitely me, like, the, a, like
0: a a battle of the sexes kind of story um yeah, and I mean, I basically only watched it because I love you and McGregor when I was in college, so I was mm. like there was a point in my life where I'd literally seen absolutely anything you and McGregor had been in. Like, literally, like, absolutely anything. Like, even, like, the tiniest indie movies that he had ever been in. I I have not followed up. Not kept up? I have not kept up with all of and McGregor's (laughs) filmography since. But Down With Love was that period of time where I would, like, watch anything he was
1: in. Um, it's cute. I think it's definitely cute. Yeah. It's cute and it's funny. It's and not great filmmaking or anything. No,
0: in the end, um, he and Renee Zellweger have this little musical number that is actually called mm. Down With Love that is very cute and almost makes me wish that the whole thing had actually been a musical. Right. And not just like kind of like a straightforward romantic comedy. But I did forget that about the entire movie. <laughs> I was like, all right.
1: Yeah. Well, you literally only find out in like the very last moments of the movie. And she has something like, it's something like a six or seven minute monologue that's uncut. And it's just her talking to the camera, explaining the entire thing. And, you know, and then it cuts to Ewan McGregor's face just with his mouth fallen open, being like, what? What? I don't understand. But it doesn't, yeah. But you don't know any of that until literally the very end. And so it doesn't seem like a revenge movie at all because it's not like we see her in that moment and we know she's doing all these things to get revenge. So,
0: Yeah, it is also like... It's not exactly a revenge narrative, I wouldn't say, because it doesn't focus. It's not told from her point of view, right? It's not told... Right. It's really told from... Well, it is told sort of from her point of view, but it's hiding a piece of yes. what she's really there for. And that's yes. that kind of like narrative deception that can or cannot work depending like I'm not a depends on who's telling the story but I am not a huge fan uh-huh. of somebody lying to me especially if they're narrating like I yes. mentioned the first book in the Queen's Thief series by Megan Whitman Turner I, I loathe because it has exactly yeah. that the character who is lying to you but the rest of her books the characters are not lying to you; they're just withholding a key piece of information that once they do reveal it to you, puts everything together, and that I don't mind, um, but like when a character is actively lying to the reader is when I get supremely upset by it um, and i
1: don't yeah, I don't really know
0: why it bothers me and when i f- and I guess because I love an unreliable narrator. It's not that I don't love an unreliable narrator.
1: But I think with an unreliable narrator, you get context clues in the story that there's something – that they're unreliable, that you know that. And so you are aware that they may or may not be telling you the truth, and that's up for you to decide. When somebody's just withholding something from you and not telling you that they're withholding it – That is really frustrating. I happen to like it in Down With Love, and that's the only time I can think of where I like it. And every other time, I think I hate it just as much as you do. I think
0: it's fun. I think, because it doesn't really bother me me in Down With Love, because the entire movie is basically a game of one-upmanship, right? It's like, Mm -hmm. you know, they're always outdoing each other, and she kind of has the last word where it's like...
1: Right. (laughs) She's got the ace in her pocket. Yeah,
0: and so that doesn't necessarily bother me. And also in films, it bothers me a little bit less when you have a character who reveals, again, a piece of information that changes the context of everything that came before. Um, I don't know if there's... I mean, there's no moratorium on the sixth sense. Like, like everyone knows what that twist is by now. But that is an example of where you get a key piece of information and it changes everything that comes before. And again, it's not that the character was lying to you. They just Mm -hmm. didn't... Well, the character Bruce Willis didn't know. He doesn't know. He couldn't
1: lie to you, yeah. And it's hard to do
0: that when you're writing in prose because even if he doesn't know, we get other context clues when we're Mm -hmm. watching the movie uh, because no one's actually talking to him. So we get those context clues and they make much more sense on a rewatch, but it's hard to do that narratively because it's hard to have that objective distance especially if the narrator is in close third or um, mm-hmm. first person, it's hard to have that distance that shows us that there are other context clues, that they're not being entirely truthful with you. Um, I feel like sometimes you can get around that by having the narrator say up front, I'm lying to you. Um, and the book is Liar by Justine larver and I think, I'm pretty sure you're the one who told me to read it. Mm-hmm. Um And the character straight up tells you, I'm a liar and proceeds to change the story that they're telling to you multiple times over the course of the story. And I think it's done pretty well because by the end, you're kind of like, I think I know what happened, but I'm not sure. Um, and I think the ambiguity is the point. It's not, it almost doesn't matter what the ending was. It's just that they are working through whatever issues that they are having. So yeah, I don't know. So revenge, redemption, villains, and unreliable narrators. Is there anything Mm -hmm. else you want to kind of put into this grouping of narrative archetypes?
1: No, I don't have anything.
0: Yeah, I think, yeah, I don't think I have anything either. So why don't we move on to our next segments, which is what are you working on?
1: I am writing another pitch letter, like I think I mentioned last week, but I think I hit my breakthrough today, Yay! which was very exciting, and the way I actually hit my breakthrough is I was literally pacing the length of my entire apartment, um, pacing the length of my apartment, reading what I had written previously aloud over and over and over again, and just being horrified by it. Um, but we've mentioned this before on the podcast that reading aloud, um, does help in a variety of ways and it can help you identify when things don't sound right, when things aren't making sense. And in my case, I knew even before I read aloud that the pitch was garbage and that I would never be showing it to anyone, but but reading it aloud helped me, um, find, the rhythms that I wanted, the words that I wanted to use, and once I kind of broke through and got that first like sentence, I was like, "Okay, okay, okay." Now I know the sound of this pitch, and uh, that was really great. So now I have um, half of a somewhat decent pitch that I need to finish up <laughs> and then refine. But it's been like a week and a half of banging my head against the wall with it, so that was rough. And then uh, my third client just turned in her revision. So I started reading that as well, and it's really good. I'm so excited. I always get really excited when my authors turn in their edits, because of course I love their books to begin with, because I wouldn't have signed them otherwise. Yeah, I was like, I hope you do, because... (laughs) Right. I'm not going to sign anyone whose books I don't love. Um, But I get really excited when when they turn in their revisions, because... It's that taking things up to the next level, and the people that I work with are so talented and are really just doing so many incredible things with their stories, and so um, I'm really excited, and I haven't read this one uh, in a while. It's been several months, so I'm excited to get back into the story and the characters, and uh, yeah, so that's what I'm working on. That's really what nice. What about you?
0: It's always you nice, I and mean, that was the same thing when I was an editor. I loved getting revised manuscripts in because I liked... You know, after having discussed with the author and kind of discussed the potential of, you know, like discussing Mm -hmm. the potential of the work and knowing what it could be. And then you're excited to see it, like you're excited to see it executed, which is always really great when you get revised manuscripts from people. Um, What am I working on? I still have not gotten my editorial letter. So I think I might uh, send an email to my agent and be like, can you? Can you prod my editor for me? I mean, it is summer in publishing. Things are slow. And I know my yeah. editor is busy. Um, and, you know, she's traveling a lot. So, But I am bored. <laughs> <laughs> is it kosher to admit that? Like, I'm bored? Yes. <laughs> um, I mean, I don't think boredom is necessarily a bad thing. I think boredom is a good thing. I often get the best ideas when I'm bored. Um and I think I wrote a post about this on PubCrawl a while ago. Um and I'll link to it when I when I find it. But it was it was about shutting things off and letting yourself get bored because I was feeling stoppered creatively and I didn't know I just ideas weren't coming and I just couldn't figure out why, and then I stopped and i and i realized this cuz i was i was always being stimulated somehow, somehow somewhere i was listening to podcasts i was listening to an audiobook i was watching tv i was reading a book like there was no moment of my day where i was yeah bored. yeah so i think boredom is in fact a good thing i think um so it, it, it's 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 making me antsy to get back to work which i is all i also think is a good thing but like shutting mm-hmm. things off shutting off distractions is not necessarily oh i'm shutting things off in order to get you know to get back to work it's i'm shutting things off to let my mind wander because when your yeah. mind wanders is when things it's okay. often why like you're in the shower and ideas come to you in the shower mm-hmm. it's because you're not preoccupied doing anything else except something kind of mentally mindless or physically mindless. So Mm -hmm.
1: yeah. Yeah. I've started going on afternoon walks and for the first couple of times I was like listening to my podcasts or music while I was doing it. And then I stopped bringing my headphones with me. The first time I'll admit was actually an accident and I didn't want to turn back and get my headphones, but I really enjoyed that walk I walked for about half an hour and I didn't have any sound in my ears and it, was like at first I was like oh god I can't believe I have to walk without listening to anything but it it does activate your mind in other ways just to be bored and look around you and you know not have anything to focus on except your your own interior thoughts and you know flotsam and jetsam and stuff so yeah I've been doing that a little bit too
0: yeah I would um walk my dog without because i used to listen to podcasts all the time while i was walking my dog and i would just walk him and it's the same thing the first time that it happened i forgot to bring my headphones and it wasn't by design and then i enjoyed that time that yeah. that sort of space and you know this is kind of a overused word but to like mindfulness you know meditation yeah is something that i have not done in a, in a while but i used to have a meditation practice along with, you know, doing yoga and things like that, and being present in myself and not letting myself be distracted by other things or anything like that was often really helpful at Focus. So, um, so yeah, on the writing front, I am not doing anything at the moment except kind of looking forward to working on writing when, when I get my edit letter. Um, and my secret project, which, again, sorry, I can't announce it. Um, Oh, other things. I finally upgraded my camera. I had um, kind of like a starter um, DSLR camera that I've had for like, I looked back on it was like nearly 10 years. So it was kind of probably time to upgrade my camera. So I upgraded from kind of like your starter Starter DSLR to like an actual nicer full frame camera, and and I love it, and I've been playing with it, but it's also weighs a ton. Like <laughs> it, like the, the the and I was like, oh my gosh, my my limp wrists because it's it's so it's so heavy. I was like, oh, this is another reason to work out weights at the gym. I gotta I gotta build up my strength to lift up my stupid camera. Um So that's what I've been working on Trying to get back into my photography habit Because I used to take photographs all the time Oh yeah Um And I enjoy taking photographs And I enjoy Because it tickles that A little bit like Kind of like web design and coding It tickles the sort of Engineering or analytical side of my brain That I like figuring out You know What are the settings that I'm going to use To get the scene that I want I like visualizing what I want to execute. So there is that kind of aspect of photography that... And the other thing is it's like I felt like my skills had outgrown my other camera, <laughs> which sounds kind of weird to say, but it is kind of true. Like there are no, other things. No, it's true. Like there are things that, or there were photographs that I wanted to take that my camera was not just couldn't do, like I couldn't have the shutter speed open long enough, or I couldn't focus properly, or its ISO was super limited, so I couldn't take photographs at night, or things like that. So there's just a lot of things that I wanted to do that I couldn't execute with my old camera that hopefully that I can with a new one. So that's what else I've been working on. So have you been reading anything? No.
1: <laughs> nope. I swear, before the end of this month, I'm going to read a non-client, non-requested thing, but, uh, but now it's just manuscripts, both client and requested material. I'm just, it's all I'm doing. Yeah. What about you? I
0: am currently reading, I think I mentioned this last week, An Enchantment of Ravens Mm. by Margaret Rogerson. I'm so sorry, I'm going to have to look this up, because I, I don't actually remember the last name, um... And I think I need to let it rest right now simply because I had just finished The Cruel Prince and this is another fairy story. And I was just like, they're a little bit too close for me. I think I need some space and some distance to, like, separate. Them. And they're not similar stories at all, but it's just, like, two fairy stories back-to-back back are a little bit much. And despite my first series being about the fae, it's not actually... Something that I like to read about all that much, fictionally. Like I'm not interested in in supernatural creatures in that way. So there's that. Um, I am completely blanking out because I was reading something else, and I can completely blanking out now on what it was. Oh, it's the short story anthology because you love to hate me. It mm. the one that's a collaborate. It's villain stories, and it's collaboration between 13 YA writers and 13 booktubers. Um, so it is a short story collection and not like a, a novel, but I'm reading those and I'm enjoying them again. Like short stories are not a medium that I'm especially familiar or comfortable with. So, um, yeah. so trying so reading those, maybe trying to stretch my writing legs a little bit and try and write a short story. It's just, it's hard, you know. It's like being an athlete. You're often you're like a long distance runner, or you're a sprinter. And I'm certainly a long distance runner when it comes to writing because I write very, 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 very long. Um mm-hmm. so, but I, I think it, you know, like cross training, I think it'd be useful to to try my hand at writing other types of other types of fiction.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, any off many recommendations this week? Um I have been listening to another publishing podcast. Oh, a, me too. um Literati Cast. Yes, that one. With, yeah. Um Jennifer Loch Lochman. I actually don't know how to say her last name. It's Lochman. This is the problem with pe- This is the problem with people I only know on the internet. I'm like I'm like aren't you your Twitter avatar isn't that who you are in real life? Um Yes, yeah, she is a literary agent um, and also um, a bookseller, uh, although now I think only very, very part-time, but used to be doing that um, before she was a literary agent as well. And she started a podcast, and it's delightful. She's wonderful. She has different guests on and interviews people and talks about interesting things that are going on in publishing and with writing and um, It's just informative and and just really, uh, really nice. Today I listened to the episode with her and Mackenzie Lee, who wrote Gentleman's Guide to Vice and Virtue. Mm -hmm. And um, she's also a bookseller, and so they had a really interesting conversation about the role that booksellers play and how they straddle this really interesting position where they have insider background knowledge to what goes on in publishing houses, but also m- are much more directly in touch with the reader and the consumer than a lot of people at publishing houses are. And it was a really fascinating conversation, and I'm so glad I got to uh, listen to it. So yeah, so I highly recommend that. Anybody who likes this podcast will probably like that one too.
0: Yeah, there are, I think I've mentioned them before, but there are a couple of other publishing related podcasts aside from ours. Um Jennifer Udden and Bridget Smith have one called Shipping mm-hmm. and Handling. Shipping and
1: Handling. They're
0: both agents. Um theirs is um I think they do a little bit more adult SFF than we do. I think we mostly mm-hmm. we talk about YA because that's what we read and write for the most part. Not entirely, but that is kind of our wheelhouse. Um there are a couple of writing related podcasts. Um there's also one. There's one by Mer Lafferty and Matt Wallace called I. No, it's um. So Mer Lafferty is a an adult science fiction fantasy writer, and for years she had a podcast called I Should Be Writing, which is just what it sounds like. It's it's her talking into, and she's had this podcast for years, and she's like talking into the. And just talking about her writing process, her struggles, her ups and downs, and um, anxiety and depression, and all sorts of things like that. So it's really kind of great in a sort of almost memoir-like bird-by-bird bird kind of a way. Um, and then she and her friend Matt Wallace, who is another adult science fiction fantasy writer, have one called Ditch Diggers. Uh And they sort of talk about writing as work, not the creative part of writing, but they talk about, like, the business of writing. Um, So they talk about things like pitching or, you know, submissions and things like that. And it's, um, it's called ditch diggers because that's often what the work of writing kind of is. It's not especially glamorous. You're digging ditches. It's hard, manual, menial, it's not manual, but it's menial work is essentially what writing is for the most part. So there's that one. Um I'm trying to think now I'm going to look and see if I
1: can find I listen to quite a few of them, so they are all they all start to blur together, but <laughs> yeah, yeah, there's first draft with Sarah Annie and mm-hmm. she interviews um authors um and those are always interesting to listen to. I was interviewed um mhm, yeah, she does lots of she gets lots of great people, and they're usually really good interviews too. I think mm-hmm. she pulls a lot of interesting things out of people when she talks mm-hmm. to them. Um, I know there's more. We'll have to throw up a whole reference link of podcasts. But but yeah, so I've been listening to that, and it's enjoyable. Anything you want to recommend?
0: Oh, I just watched the 2014 French version of Beauty and the Beast, La Belle et la Bête with Vincent Cassel and Lea Seydoux. It is gorgeous. It's on Netflix, so you guys can... uh, If you guys are in the U.S., it is on the U.S. Netflix, and you guys can watch it. And it was what I needed to uh, kind of get over my disappointment with the uh, Disney live-action version. Um, Also, I really like Vincent Cassel. I can't really pinpoint why exactly I like him so much, but every time I've seen him, I've thought he's been great. Um, I think... American viewers will probably know him best from one of the Ocean's 11 movies. I can't remember which. I think it was Ocean's 12, maybe. Uh, oh, does he play the fox? Mm-hmm. And he also is the ballet director in Black Swan, mm-hmm. the um, movie with Natalie Portman. So um, he is, but he's mostly known in like French films, but I, I really like him and he's great in it and just visually this movie is Dunning, just gorgeous to look at, and so I really enjoyed it. It reminded me, in some ways, and probably consciously, of the Jacques Cocteau version, La Belle, La Belle. Mm. Um but it's less surreal and more accessible, which is always good. So there's that, which I highly recommend. It was, it's just beautiful. Um, nothing new aside from that. Oh, this is also not new, but I, <laughs> I mentioned this on Twitter before, but. I was just like, why is every movie these days, like, it's all this, like, muddy gray palette? Yes! Because um, I, I, what it was was, like, I had retweeted this short video of a scene from Avengers Age of Ultron where it was set to, like, the Powerpuff Girls music, and it fits perfectly, and it's amazing. But after that, I was just like, it's, like, kind of unwatchable in that it's so grayed out and so muddy color wise that you, it's almost hard to tell what's going on um, mm-hmm. and so I was like really in the mood for color so I found the 2014 Beauty and the Beast and it is it's full of it's beautiful color palettes and just beautifully shot and every scene looks like a painting um, but I also rewatched Hero the martial arts movie with um, oh. Jet Li not, is it Jet Li? who's in it. But there's like um also Donnie Yen. I forgot he was in it. He's also in Rogue One. He was the blind monk in Ro- Rogue One. He's also a hero. Um and that one is notable because it is also an unreliable narrator. The narrator is lying to you, and so you're trying to parse what is the real story and what isn't, and each of the narratives are color-coded. Um mm-hmm. so it's it's very, you know, visually directed that way. And also Amelie. Which is another like really I like I just like it when did this fall out of style? Like when did yeah. saturation and contrast fall yeah. out of style in
1: film? I know. I always think of pushing daisies oh, for I the colors that. in that. Such a good show. Oh, it is a good show.
0: I mean Brian Fuller always does amazing things. Like I have not seen Hannibal, but I've also heard that visually that Hannibal is really, really, really great to watch. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's it on my off many recommendations and so uh, we do. We have, have a, new a new review! Yay! Yay! So why don't you read Kelly? Because you love
1: getting reviews. <laughs> I do. I do. Um, okay, so this review is from Caitlin Sage. Best publishing podcast. I've so enjoyed catching up on the Pub Crawl podcast archives. These discussions are extraordinarily interesting and useful for writers at any stage of the game. The Archetypes oppressed versus oppressor episode helped me figure out exactly how I wanted to tackle a project that's had me stymied for a while. Thanks y'all. Heart. Oh, yay. That's awesome. I'm so glad that you found it helpful. Yay!
0: Um, so please keep the reviews coming if you can. This is us shamelessly begging. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um,
1: they make me so happy. I need some bright spots in my life, guys.
0: Yeah, it's, you know, it's like whenever you wade into Twitter, there's always some other horror, horrific news happening here or there. So we, when we get reviews, they make us happier. <laughs> <laughs> Quick, before the world ends. I know, before the world ends. Can we get to 50 reviews? (laughs) Um, So, I don't think we have any new questions, do we? No. That's all for this week. Next week, we'll be continuing our archetypes discussions with Cataclysm narratives. And this includes... uh, Post apocalyptic, end of the world, survival narratives, that sort. So, as always, if you want more, please subscribe via iTunes, Stitcher, Podcast
1: Pickle, or your podcast provider of choice. Also, if you like us, please rate and review when you get a chance, as it helps other listeners find the podcast.
0: If you want more Pub Crawl goodness, you can go to our website, publishingcrawl.com, where we have many more posts and articles about various aspects of reading, writing, and the publishing industry.
1: You can also follow us on Twitter at PubCrawlBlog, as well as on Tumblr, Facebook, and Instagram at PublishingCrawl.
0: You can follow me, JJ, at SJJones, that's S-J-A-E-J-O-N-E-S, on Twitter or my website, sjjones.com. And you can follow me, Kelly, at BookishChick
1: on Twitter or my website, penandparsley.com.
0: Our theme music is Quirky Dog by Kevin MacLeod, and our logo is designed by Aaron Bowman, author of Retribution Rails, forthcoming November 7th.
1: If you have any further questions, comments, or feedback, feel free to leave us an email at publishingcrawl at gmail.com, or send us an ask through Tumblr, or use the hashtag on Twitter, AskPubCrawl.
0: Thank you so much for listening. Bye! Bye!